Hi, this is Karin Zissas of ASCOA Online. If you're following Brazil's presidential race, even passively, you've heard of Lula and Bolsonaro. But even if these are familiar names, there's something different about this election. For the first time in the country's history, two candidates who already had the job before are asking for another chance. We had in in 2018 a very anti-system kind of environment. The issue was who will be the most extreme candidate that will be able to kind of fight against the system. Right now, it's, it's, it's quite the opposite. Right now, what people are looking for is for someone who can actually fix the economy, who can kind of put uh, Brazil back in the, in the trails again. That was Felipe Nunes, CEO of Brazilian polling firm Quest, as well as a professor at the Federal University of Minas Gerais and a PhD in political science from UCLA. He spoke with my colleague, Luisa Leme, about why low-income women and evangelicals could end up being the race's kingmakers, and why both the Lula and Bolsonaro campaigns have homework to do to drum up support. But first, the presidential seat isn't the only thing at stake in this election. On October 2nd, Brazilians will also pick governors in all 27 states, as well as a third of the Senate and all 513 deputies in the lower house. We hear why Brazil's legislature has gained power in recent years and what the congressional race means for the next president. From Beatriz Rey, a fellow at Johns Hopkins University's SNF Agora Institute and an expert on Brazil's legislature. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latino America in Foco. America Latina in Foco. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. Beatriz, hey, thank you so much for participating in the Latin America in Focus podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Beatriz, can you explain to us first Brazil's Congress context? So what makes Brazil's Congress different from most legislatures in the world? Uh, I would say two things. So we're used to think about Congress in the U.S. as a place where you only have two parties. Uh, Brazil's Congress is highly fragmented. Just to illustrate, in political science, we use an index uh, that we call of effective parties uh, that captures the number of effective parties in the legislature by considering the size of the parties. In Brazil's index, it's 14, which is among the highest or if not the highest in the world. So highly fragmented. And the other thing is that you have parties that most of them don't have policy commitments like the parties in the U.S. do. And how does the multi-party, this fragmented system affect policymaking in Brazil? Uh, it makes it very difficult. It's uh, Can you imagine? We have, for instance, in, in Brazil's Chamber of Deputies, we have 513 deputies. And all decisions are, are made through majorities. So you have to build majorities to make decisions in committees or on the floor. And so it's, it's very hard. It's very hard to, to build support. We had an election, the last one in 2018, that was an anomaly in many ways. We had a president who was elected from a party that was basically small and un- unknown until then. 
And, and then he brought with him a lot of uh, candidates to Congress from this party. We don't know if he's going to be able to do the same, given the economic crisis that we have in the country. We don't know if uh, former President Lula is going to be able to carry candidates. On the top of that, we have a lot of new changes, a lot of institutional reforms that were adopted for, the, for this election for, the, for Congress. As you can see, there are many variables. Since the beginning of Bolsonaro's government, how did Congress change? So I think one thing that it's important to highlight is that Congress has been getting uh, stronger ever since the early 2000s. And he's been doing that in relation to the power of the executive, but also as a body that legislates, right? So you see reforms, for instance, on provisional decrees in 2001. You have budgetary reforms in 2015, 2019. In um, 2009, it's the first year that Congress passed more laws proposed by legislators than by the presidency. So that's a turning point. But until the Bolsonaro administration, things have been happening through institutional means. Because President Bolsonaro refused to use his legislative prerogatives. What happened basically was he tried to build support by delegating the legislative work to the speakers of uh, the chamber and the Senate. And that's where the secret uh, budget appears. So you said that Bolsonaro does not, chooses not to use his legislative prerogatives you talked about. So um, can you explain that and explain what is the secret budget? We have in Brazil budgetary amendments that are pockets of money that uh, lawmakers can send to their districts to support projects. It's a legitimate mechanism of democratic representation. So a way to send federal money to local governments? To their districts, to their electoral districts, like to to buy ambulances to build schools like to like all sorts of things that these localities really need individual lawmakers can send that state groups can send that and the rapporteur of the budget law can send that until the bolsonaro administration in 2020 i think the everything like the rapporteur didn't send uh, not as much money as we're seeing right now Like it wasn't something that we really paid attention because it was like uh, not something that was used in in illegal or non-transparent ways. What starts happening is that the the rapporteur of the budget law starts getting requests from lawmakers themselves to send money to their districts that we cannot trace. So we don't know because everything is under the name of the rapporteur. So the rapporteur has everything under his name and the money is being sent. We don't know to where, we don't know how much and who sent it. The Supreme Court intervened. We have some data. The work that journalists in Brazil have been doing is incredible in that way. But we, we still don't know a lot about this money. Uh, the, the equilibrium in Brazilian politics is that the president is the center of power in lawmaking, Right. Uh, he coordinates the agenda with the legislative branch. He's in, in, in touch with uh, party leaders. Uh, he tries to build support. Uh, Bolsonaro hasn't done that. Uh, in fact, he spent half of his or a part of his uh, tenure criticizing uh, Congress when, for instance, Rodrigo Maia was the Speaker of the Chamber. Esse gordinho nunca me so he, he refuses to do that. And then by the time that he realizes that he needs the support of Congress to not suffer an impeachment process, he delegates that to the speakers uh, of the, the chamber and the Senate. To be fair, uh, Juma also did not play that part as well, right? 
Uh, and that's uh, part of the reason why, why we identify that uh, she suffered an impeachment process. We understand a little bit now that there is a different way to flow money from the federal government to local uh, governments uh, right now in Brazil. And this is happening through Congress. So how is the secret budget um, affecting the elections this year? I think one of the, the, the really bad consequences of the secret budget, and there are many of them, um, is that the people who send the money, the, the, the Congress people who send the money, uh, have an electoral advantage, right? Because they're able to, to tell their voters that they did stuff for them. So th they're an advantage. Uh, and we know that the, the, the lawmakers from who are allies of Artulira and Jair Bolsonaro are the ones who use the money the most. Meu amigo de longa data, Artulira, ele é o dono da pauta na Câmara dos Deputados. How do you see Congress in 2023? Would you be able to go through different scenarios in a sense of like a Bolsonaro president relax scenario or a Lula president scenario? So I think it depends on who the president's going to be and who the speaker of the chamber is going to be specifically. If Lula is the president and Artulita is still the speaker, he's going to have a lot of trouble um, building support. So Arturita was elected for the years of 2021 and 2022. So there'll be a new speaker for the years of 23, 24. Arturita is in a very comfortable position with all the power he has over the secret budget right now. And so any attempt that Lula makes to try to change that is not going to go well. And Arturita has a, he has a good control of the chamber. If Bolsonaro is elected and Nita is uh, still the speaker, we're going to have more of the same, right? Even worse, in my opinion, uh, in terms of deterioration, institutional deterioration of Congress and this non-institutionalized strengthening process that I think it's very detrimental, detrimental to Brazilian democracy. If Lula is president and we have a new speaker and a speaker that is, uh, I don't know, more aligned with his coalition, he might be able to change the secret budget, not in the next year, because that's still tied to this year's, uh, to the, the eight-year budget uh, law, but the next one, even though I, I think uh, one of the, another really bad consequence of the secret budget is that it benefits all lawmakers, all Congress people, right? Even the opposition got benefited mm -hmm. by, by the secret budget. So Lula is going to have to have to spend a lot of political capital there. So I think those are the, the three scenarios. The composition of Congress itself we don't know. I don't think it's going to be as progressive as pe some people have said. I do think that with the new rules that are going to become affected in, in, in this cycle, for instance, we're going to have uh, party federations. So one thing I can say for sure, it's not going to be as, as fragmented as it has been until this point, mm -hmm. which I think is great news. That's great. Thank you so much for coming to Latin American Focus podcast, Beatriz. Thank you again for inviting me. Next up, we hear about Brazil's presidential race in a conversation between pollster Felipe Nunes and ASCOA Online's Luisa Lemon. Felipe, thank you so much for participating in Latin America in Focus. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for, for the invitation. Felipe, let's start with this um, very interesting presidential race. We've been talking about these elections for years now since the previous elections almost. Sometimes it feels like the same 2018 story between Lula and Bolsonaro just continues. Uh, first, I would like to know if you feel this continuation, if you feel like that or not, and 
then if you believe we are going to start seeing changes in the tenor of the campaigns as the official elections start? Yeah, Luis, it, it, it looks like the same, but it's not. It's actually very different. Uh, the polarization between um, those two names, Lula and Bolsonaro, remains. They depend on each other to survive in this kind of jungle of polarization, debates, and, and radicalization. But actually, the context that really matters is it's very different. In 2018, we had no incumbent running for re-election. Everybody was trying to, you know, to get elected for the first time. And then uh, the issue was who will be the most extreme candidate that will be able to kind of fight against the system. We had in, in 2018 a very anti-system kind of environment. Right now, it's, it's, it's quite the opposite. Right now, what people are looking for is for someone who can actually fix the economy, who can kind of put uh, Brazil back in the, in the trails again. And although we, we remain with the same polarization, the idea is now is about the second chance. Both Lula and Bolsonaro have uh, already uh, been presidents. They, they have been elected in the past. So it's the first time in our history we have two presidents running against each other. And the main question voters will ask themselves is who deserves a second chance? Uh, Lula to come back or Bolsonaro to remain in power? And in that context, the, the economy plays a way more important role than 2018. Thank you. These two figures are still running the race. What is the importance of the other candidates? At this moment, I mean, they are not well-positioned and they are not in the main role at all. To give some context to, to our audience, I mean, we always have presidential races in which two parties always polarize kind of the dispute. Although we have a multi-party system different than the U.S., in Congress, for example, we have, we have more than 30 parties right now with representation. The presidential races have always been about two names, right? And it's very interesting, Luisa, because Lula has participated in almost all of those elections, right? We're talking about 89, 94, 98, mm -hmm. 2002, 2006. It's only 10 and 14 that he was not uh, present as, a, as candidate. So, you know, his figure, it's, it's very important to understand this continuation and this, this idea of having two big names polarizing Uh, has always been kind of the rule. We have never seen a third candidate or a third party kind of getting the role. So what their main role in, in the history and right now also is to create the opportunity for a second round, right? Brazil has two round system of a presidential election. And if the first candidate doesn't get 50% plus one of the valid votes, then we go to a second round. That's the main debate at this moment. If we will have a first or a second round this year, it's important to remember that only Fernando Henrique Cardoso in 1994 and 1998 won in the first round. No one else was able to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, having someone else like Ciro, Tabet, Felipe Davila, and other names who are also disputing the presidency, their importance is more about having or not this second race in this election. As you're talking about, Bolsonaro is trying to close this wide gap between 
Lula and his voters because he wants a second round, right? So where where do polls stand right now, Felipe? Yeah, so the polls shows that uh, Lula is leading the dispute with a, a important margin, right? It's a it's a wide distance right now, but that distance is becoming smaller and smaller over the month, and that depends specifically on two issues: the role of evangelicals in this race. We know that evangelicals vote way more for Bolsonaro than for Lula. And mm -hmm. all evangelical leaders who are very important, especially in the poor areas of Brazil, they have an important role, I would say, in this election. Evangelicals are about a third of the electoral. Exactly. Yeah. 30%. Yeah. 30% of Brazilians at this moment identify themselves as evangelicals. In 2010, just to give a, an idea for uh, everybody who's listening to us, this number was about 20%. So they are increased population over time, right? So that's the one issue. Evangelicals will play an important role. The second role is about all the benefits that uh, government Bolsonaro is providing for, uh, especially for the poor at this moment. So he's creating kind of cash transfer programs who goes directly to the pocket of poor voters in order to try to persuade them to change their minds from Lula to him. This phenomenon we know as a triangulation in which, you know, a candidate kind of uses the other candidate's agenda to try to swing voters for his side. We have seen Bill Clinton doing that in his first election in the U.S. We have seen uh, Tony Blair doing that in, in England in his mm -hmm. uh, election as prime minister. So that's not something new. And also it's something very effective. So because uh, Bolsonaro has been able to kind of um, target, you know, these poor voters, he has been able to create expectations on them about something better. Because, uh, Luisa, since last year, the only discussion in Brazil was about the economy. So we have a lot mm -hmm. of hungry people. Poverty is going up. Inequality is going up. The salaries don't buy stuff anymore, you know, necessary to survive. So this, the economic situation in Brazil right now is really, really bad. And as you know, the literature in political science has shown that presidents in, during uh, economic crisis tend not to be reelected, right? That's worldwide, not only Brazil. So the tendency was for Bolsonaro not being reelected, but those benefits that he's creating right now, they are kind of creating a different scenario in which some of those voters are actually being excited about uh, the benefits. But uh, uh, important to mention, not all of them. Half of those voters who know about the benefits, who understand what's going on, say that it's not going to affect them, which suggests, in my opinion, that we will have a minimal but significant effect because Probably the, the reason why we will have a second round this year is exactly because Bolsonaro has been able to uh, pass this legislation, create the crash transfer program and target those poor, poor voters. That's great. Felipe, this is the first time, as you said, that we have two candidates who have been president before asking for a second chance. Considering this, who are the swing voters? who Bolsonaro and Lula should be fighting for? And does the anti-vote, the apathy vote matter? How much is rejection 
against these candidates important here? Oh, Luis, I love that question because that reminds me of when I was studying the U.S. and talking about <laughs> the swing states, Ohio and Florida <laughs> and all that in the presidential race. Uh, yeah, so in Brazil, we can, we can use that same uh, idea to understand politics here. We can basically say that the Northeast, very poor, has voted for Lula and for PT since 2002. The South and Central East, very agriculture, has been voting for the anti-PT candidate since 2006. So this regional polarization has been established, like in the U.S., like dividing the North and the South in the same way, which, which leads us to the Southeast, right? The Southeast has three large populations in Sao mm -hmm. Paulo, Rio and Minas Gerais, right? These three are very important states for this election. Sao Paulo has never voted for Lula and PT since 2002. So it's a place where he, PT has always lost. But this year, Lula is winning. Minas Gerais and Rio are very clear swing states. They are like Wisconsin and Ohio in that, that sense. Minas is very interesting because it's kind of a microcosmos. It's like a, sociologically, it has all the characteristics together of Brazil. The south, it's rich. The north is poor. The east, it's, uh, it's similar to like the agriculture area. And the west kind of mm -hmm. looks like uh, Rio and, and the beach areas, right, of the country. So you kind of see like a, a sample of the country in Minas Gerais. That's a swing state, clearly. And more specifically, poor women are the ones who can decide this year if the winner will be Lula or Bolsonaro. And the reason why I'm saying that is because they have voted for both in the past. Mm -hmm. They are a large population, and they are, when we model the election, they are the, one of the most predictor variables in uh, defining if Lula or Bolsonaro will win the race. In Rio... The swing voter are the evangelicals. There is a large population. You know, we talked about the 30% in the country, but in Rio, it's almost 40% who identify mm. themselves as evangelicals, right? So in Rio, if you win the poor people in the, uh, who are identified as evangelicals, you have a higher chances of winning the state, right? So if, uh, um, you know, if, if someone is interested in Brazilian politics, you should pay careful attention in Rio and in Minas, and especially in poor women in Minas and evangelicals in Rio to understand these possible changes that we might have until during this race. But you asked me as well about the apathy, right? Yeah. A year ago, I interviewed Mauricio Moura, another poster, like one year before the elections. And one of the things that he said was that what matters uh, to understand this 2022 elections would be to understand who's showing up, who's showing up to vote, because Brazil's vote is compulsory, yes, but turnout hasn't been the same in the previous years, right? Yes, yes, yes. Maurice is right. Uh, turnout is one of the issues that polls readily can help understanding because, you know, when you poll someone over here, you basically are talking about someone who already are interested in politics, who already like to talk about politics. So usually every poll underestimates abstention or uh, political alienation, as we like to call it in Brazil. 
when we draw the maps of abstentions in Brazil, you we learn that different than what people think, it's not the very poor who are not mobilized to go to vote. Usually, it's the middle class in the southeast who, in this in the first opportunity, kind of don't like to go to vote because they don't have enough information. They don't don't want to fight in the polarization. They don't think it's important for them. They don't depend on the state as much. We were talking about 25% of total electorate. They are key to understand the final result because they they tend to to evaluate the government very bad in general because they don't like government at all. They're more conservatives. So if they go or not to vote, they might kind of go uh, make Bolsonaro go up a little bit. Uh, Quest is developing a likely voter model as as you you know is 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 normal in the US and uh the recent outcomes we have at this moment show that if we take out of the sample people who are less likely to vote the distance between Lula and Bolsonaro gets really tight which means uh you know Bolsonaro voters right now are more mobilized than Lula voters to actually show up and that can make a difference in the outcome. We have President Bolsonaro recently putting democratic institutions in question in Brazil. Uh, there is this debate he has talked about against electronic uh, voting. And there is a um, constant battle with the electoral tribunal. We have now a letter defending democracy in the country signed by business leaders and over half a million people. Does this debate over the democratic process affect voter intention? Yes, I do think so. So let's get that in part. So first, yes, the economy has been very important. The social benefits have been very important. Uh, but there is also another dimension, which is basically measured by the rejection of Bolsonaro in the country, who is right now around 55%. And that rejection rate is basically explained by this division of the country, which tries to organize Brazil in the allies and the, uh, you know, the, and the opposition uh, of, uh, of that person, right? And one of the ways in which the, the politicians are organizing that debate is about democratization, right? If you are, if mm-hmm. are against democracy, you are Bolsonarista. If you are in favor of democracy, you are kind of in the side of Lula. And that point is very interesting because Bolsonaro, although he keeps working in the economy to try to create social benefits for the poor people, on the other side, he kind of shoots itself on the foot all the time, right, with this institutional tensioning. And I'm going to explain why. The voters that he can conquer with the benefits of, you know, created by the government are the same ones who don't like institutional instability. He gives people good expectations with money, but he takes back that expectation when he kind of goes against uh, democracy, the electronic voting, and and so on. So Mm -hmm. in in my sense, in the next two months, uh, if Bolsonaro wants to win the election, if if he really wants to do that right, he has to change that attitude. Otherwise, he's not going to be able to reach very, very important clusters of voters who don't uh, agree or approve the institutional tension in that the president itself 
creates for the country. You mentioned that not all the Lula voters are that engaged. Is that what Lula needs to do? Like, what is the what is the homework here for Lula's campaign in the next two months? Yeah, so Lula has to talk with evangelicals. E a gente não tem que ficar brigando com pastor. Nós temos que conversar com o povo evangélico que não é inferior. And Lula needs to win Rio and Minas. Uh, in order to do that, Lula has to present a very clear economic agenda to show to Brazilians that uh, he's not going to be kind of uh, angry president. He will be uh, moderate and try to put, you know, the dialogue back in the table. Uh, the homework here is important because it's really on those two groups, the Southeast in Minas and Rio and in the evangelicals where Bolsonaro got important advantage uh, over the last two months. Since they have this homework, we're talking about information and, you know, passing information to voters. And we know that this changed dramatically in the last elections. How people vote today, how they consume information changed. Our phones matter. WhatsApp changed the election, right? Can you explain the work that you're doing with the Digital Popularity Index? How do you see this changing for these election cycle? I'm the only political scientist in Brazil who has an algorithm who tries to collect and understand elections through social network data. And I love that work because in Brazil, we have two big clusters. One, like poor voters who watch TV and inform themselves about politics on TV and other ones who are more young and richer who inform themselves Uh, about politics on social network. The idea of the Digital Popularity Index was to put those two words together. So we collect more than 100 variables from Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Google, and Wikipedia. And based on that, we estimate the popularity of politicians in Brazil. We compare them, we put them in an index that rank themselves in terms of who is performing better or worse um, mm-hmm. in, in every day, right? And we calibrate that index using polls, using economic factors and electoral factors. So what we are showing right now is that Bolsonaro and Lula are polarizing the discussion in the internet and that polarization that's happening in the internet create on me the expectation that this election, this two next month will be way more violent, more aggressive, more intense than has been so far. Mm. Because both of them have great channels of distribution of communications, narratives, images, and arguments. And that's, of course, in an election race, it's all that matters, right? People talking about in their Facebooks, in their Instagram, in their Twitter, and so on. Philippe, can you tell about digital moments? Lula had a wedding, uh, live stream on social media. Bolsonaro goes live among bikers every week almost. Can, can you talk about how are they using social networks as tools? Yeah, so we live in an era that I like to call a pop political area, era in which, uh, you know, voters are consuming political information as a way of entertaining themselves 
more than actually getting information. And that's why politicians are trying to become celebrities in the social network. So they mm -hmm. get married, they go on vacation, they, you know, they show themselves with their children and so on. And all that is a fight for audience. All that is a fight for recall, right? Which really is one of the most important predictors of, uh, you know, if you are remembered, you are voted. And if I were you, Luisa, I would pay a lot of attention on what's going to happen on August 11, which is when kind of left-wing centrist uh, political actors in Brazil will try to create a manifest You know, they will read a letter in favor of democracy. Eu vou. No dia 11, eu vou. No dia 11, eu vou. And that's an attempt to kind of create an event in, uh, in favor of Lula. But mm -hmm. you should also pay attention on September uh, 7th. When it's very, very likely that Bolsonaro will have tons of thousands of people on the streets protesting and showing support to him. And of course, those two events, more than the events themselves, more mm -hmm. important is going to be what the social network images will show, how people will translate what they have seen in the actual events to the others who are not there through the social platform. Felipe, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for participating in Latin American Focus. You gave us a lot to think of and a lot to observe uh, for the Brazilian vote. Thank you, Luisa. It was a pleasure to talk to you and all your great and, 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 and big audience in this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Karen Zissas. This episode was produced by Luisa Leme, our executive producer. Get poll numbers and hear more about this year's Brazil elections at www.as-coa.org slash 2022. The music in this podcast is Sarara by Yamandu Costa, recorded for America Society. Check the podcast notes for links to watch the full videos. And find out about upcoming concerts at musicoftheamericas.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can help us spread the word. Write us a review, give us five stars, or subscribe at Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.